I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and the sermon notes from your bulletin will, will help you know where we're going and uh, things like that. Grateful that you're here today. I know that um, other things could take your time and attention, and, and for you to come this morning, I'm really glad. I want to say a word as we head toward the text uh, about uh, the trip that you all just sent me on. Uh, from the 1st to, through the 14th, uh, I was your representative on a, on a, a whirlwind of a trip. I um, was able to be a part of the Romanian Leadership Forum in Romania. That's an offshoot of the European Leadership Forum that we're also involved in. Uh, that was a couple of days. Then up to Ukraine, I was there with a, a Romanian pastor and another guy with a German passport, uh, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, a Romanian, a German, and an American are crossing the border into Ukraine. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, we, we thought about things like that, uh, traveling late at night and so on. Got up in Ukraine uh, through uh, interesting border setting and um, I got there by 10 o'clock or so. Sunday morning, um, I, I took part of the role of one of the host pastors there. Pastor John preaches in five churches every Sunday. Some of you think what we're doing is aggressive. This is one pastor, five churches. Uh, there are no other pastors. That's why he does what he does. It's a big section of territory. He preaches in a, a 9 o'clock church service, the 10 o'clock church service in another village. These are villages, dirt roads, things like that. Um, the 10 o'clock service starts, and then he gets there just in time to step into the pulpit and preach, has lunch. Then there's a 2 o'clock, a 5, 5.30, whenever he gets there, and then a 7. And then you, by then you're over an hour from home, so you, you drive back and eat dinner about 9, 9.30. So I preached in the 4. We didn't do the 9 that day for whatever reason, but, but I preached in, in 4. The, the 10 o'clock was the biggest in a bigger village. Uh, try this. 75 adults, 225 children. There's no nursery. There's, it's one room. It's about this size. Um, and it's sheer chaos. Um, there's some adults paying attention, but I'm telling you what, um, it's, it's, it's really an event. You, it's like an anthill, and uh, there are children wandering around, and this one's crying, and somebody over there is on their cell phone, no problem. And then there's a dog. <laughs> it's like, all right, we are in another world, sister. So the way you do this is you turn the volume up on the mic and pay attention and then go. And so I found myself thinking, though, what, what do you say to these folks? Because on the way here, you know, I was getting a briefing on what we're driving into in this part of Ukraine. It's on the west. So you're 700 kilometers away from the war, but you're not that far because we're driving by cemeteries with flags that are planted from this, the war dead from this war. And by the way, the village we're in right now has lost 21 of their young men. Um, and most of the men you're going to see in church are under 18 or over 60. All the rest are pretty much gone. Um, other than that, it's grandmothers and tenacious moms who are showing up with, with all their children. That's the 225. You think it's hard getting ready for church? Yeah, it was pouring down rain, dirt roads. Kids are all wearing boots. Um, very, uh, boy, did anybody drive? I don't know. It's a village. You walk to church in the rain. It's what it is. Um, what keeps you from church? But I, I could, you could feel the sadness. That's what I thought. In addition to the busyness, you could just feel the sadness. Uh, the music in minor keys. You find that in Slavic countries often. The music is in minor keys. Um, the whole, hey, everybody, here we go. Yeah, just stop it. Just stop it. Um, that's not it. So you, you preach, and then you get something to eat, and off you go, and then two, and then five. And uh, three of those settings had no heat. 
And the final one, it was at a little, oh my goodness sakes, a little tiny village, a little tiny building, um, uh, not much to it, no heat, like I said, in three of them. In that final one, there was one tube lighting the room. That's it. The building had been broken into numerous times, uh, boards over the windows, people looking for food. And there you go. People huddled together. It's mid-40s, maybe the low-40s. It's freezing. You came to church anyway. You knew it'd be freezing. So you're going to sit there in this little room, sing a few songs, and, okay, Jay, go. Say something. Yeah. Yeah, it's profound. You know, what are you going to do? What are you going to preach? So I, I, I started off with one sermon in the first uh, place. Um, found out I was going to preach that morning 15 minutes before church. <laughs> that was kind of fun. Um, just I thought I was giving a testimony. So I was geared up for that. And uh, just clarified, how long is that going to be for the testimony? He says, oh, no, no, he's doing a testimony. You're preaching. That was, that was 945. Church starts at 10. I think, all right. I, I, that's all right. I can do this. So I'm going to go here. And uh, then when we got to the second one, just sitting in there feeling the moment. I thought, okay, I'm going to switch. So I leaned over to the Romanian guy who was going to translate for me. I said, hey, um, Emmanuel, it's going to be Luke 17, not Ephesians 3. He said, all right, let's go. Uh, In that church setting, we were translated twice um, into Romanian. And then the Ukrainian guy took the Romanian uh, translation and put it into Ukrainian. So it was was quite a deal. But there's a different feel among people who are who are, or who are living in such strained circumstances, so unlike us, so unlike us. I saw, I saw horse-drawn wagons that were normal, normal part of life. Uh, anyway, interesting. Uh, then I went down to, uh, boy, through Hungary and back down to Romania, taught at a, a university, taught a pastoral um, uh, theology class uh, for, for three days uh, to some pastoral students at a, at a university that was started as an underground seminary under communism. I heard all kinds of stories about its development and out there in the hills. That's where we started because the communists were killing our pastors. So we recruited others to take their place. And we took them out in the hills and we had this seminary out there and we, we brought in people like John Stott. Um, we'd have him come in, uh, Emmanuel, my, my host, who said, yeah, I was, I was a kid. And I remember these people coming and thinking, who's this guy? But we we're going to get him. He'd come. The communists wondered what it was. And we'd stick him in a car and sneak him out of the hills to this seminary so they could preach. Uh, and teach to, to future pastors who were probably also going to be killed. But they, men, young men volunteered and went to seminary. That's where that university came from. So I got to speak there. I asked Emmanuel at one point, do you know anybody who was, who was here during the revolution, like who saw it? He said, yes. I've known this guy for a while. He said, yes, I was. And my dad. And he's here at the university. I got to have dinner with those guys. And say, tell me about the revolution. Tell me what you saw. What was it like being a pastor? Uh, he figured he had about 30 more days. They, his, he was on a list. They were coming for the other guys. <laughs> he figured he had about another month or two, and then he'd have been out, uh, killed. Um, Emmanuel spent his, he was 12 years old when the revolution happened. His dad said, I want you to see, you know, happy 12th birthday. I'm going to take you to Bucharest. I want you to see the revolution. His mom's going, no, 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 no. It's too much for a 12-year-old. He said, no, it isn't. He's old enough to see the price of freedom. So he took his son down there to see the, I'll keep it kind, the, play, the things that happen when tanks and people collide. That was a 12-year-old. 
who will never forget um, the carnage every, every day in the streets from people saying, no, the price of freedom. Uh, so anyway, all those things, boy, what a, what a privilege. We went down to um, Hungary to spend a, a brief weekend with the pastor and wife that Kathy and I met through the European Leadership Forum and mentor now uh, through monthly meetings, but spent time with them and their six, uh, six kids, and then back down to um, Africa uh, where I had a brief meeting with, with Caxton, saw him over lunch, and then afternoon with the three kids. So I did those things. So enough said, I think, on all of that. Thank you for allowing me the freedom to go. The travel was aggressive. Uh, a lot of, of uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. It really was, and some long flights. But uh, did I do a lot of sightseeing? No, really not much at all. Um, God be the glory. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it, was, it was really something, though, Bob. I, um, I, I remember sitting up front. They do that over those, in some of those places. They make you sit up front. I don't want to sit in front, but they make you sit in front. But the interesting, you can watch the crowd and try to read who's in the room. And it's just different. There's a different feel as God's people gather. Is it an option for them? Now, I had the sense, no, they're not here because it's a choice for the day. They're here because they could not survive without it. I've got to meet with God. I've got to meet with God's people. What do you mean it's a choice? No, I'm going. There were some stubborn, fiercely stubborn people in that room who walked through mud and rain to say, I'm going to be with God's people. Oh, yes, I will. No heat. Very few lights. Doesn't matter. Anyway, it was, it was moving, let's say, as you get up to, to speak grateful for all of that. All of this at a Thanksgiving time. Romanian churches also celebrate Thanksgiving. Did you know that? Not the American holiday, but most Romanian churches sometime in the fall mark a day of Thanksgiving to God and fill their foyer with the fruit of the soil and the trees, just like we would do. And they showed me pictures to say, here's what we do. And that day is our Thanksgiving day to give thanks to God for his goodness. Well, I, I found that so wonderful. Our privilege today to open the Word of God and on this Thanksgiving week to look at a text that I think is a prompt toward Thanksgiving as a response of our hearts to the Lord too. So your Bibles are open to Mark 4. Sermon notes are there. I'd like to pray for us and we'll step into the text here. All right? But join me please as we pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being part of a worldwide community, men and women of faith, uh, at times in seasons of ease and comfort and rest and peace, and at other times when none of those things are true, a time of difficulty and turmoil and loss and angst and fear and wonder and grief and discomfort that seems like it will last forever. And I thank you for the stubborn faith of those brothers and sisters in Christ that are ours, our families scattered abroad. Give them courage today. Give them hope. Give them that ability to hold on to you and to see things that are eternal. But for us today, our Father, open your word to us, our hearts as well, to your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, uh, on your sermon notes, you have, as always, the review section that brings you up to speed with, with what we're doing as we preach through the Gospel of Mark this ministry year. Uh, chapter 4 is one of the chapters that takes a break, so to speak, from all the action. There are two chapters like this in the Gospel of Mark. There's a lot of action, but Mark 4 and Mark 13 contain a lot of discourse. The rest of it is pretty much action and healing and moving around and things like that. But this is one of the two big sections, Mark 4, 1 through verse 34, that has very little action in it, but really a big section of teaching. If you look at the section on your notes called today's text, you'll see my comments here that there really are four sections, three that are continuing the, the, the teaching of parables. And one that then is a return to narrative action. I'm, I'm addressing these under two headings instead of four, okay? So that's the way I have this laid out. So the last week, we looked together at the parable of the sower, or really you could say the parable of the soils, probably more precisely. And we see in this chapter, I'll tell you ahead of time before we read today's text, uh, about, about ten, at least, uh, uh, references to the way people hear, the way people listen, And that continues in the text that I'm going to read here in just a moment. Jesus says a lot here about our ability to hear. And by the way, there are different words that Jesus uses in the original text that that highlight the difference that you know between in one ear and out the other, like you say about your kids. You know, you heard me, but I know you weren't really listening. Well, you can say that a certain way. And then there's another kind of hearing where somebody gets it. And they really listened. They heard with faith. Their ears were opened. So those are both represented here in the text. And so watch as I read for those comments about listening, because we are called to be those who have ears to hear and then to, to, to listen. So I'm going to read Mark 4, 21 through 41, the whole section of God's word. So we read, and Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the harvest is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle. Because the harvest has come. And he said, see the rhythm there? Verse 21, verse 26, now 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God and what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he taught them, or he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. 
On that day, now narrative again returns. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. God's word. Now, may I say right at the beginning here, that the question that is asked in verse 41 is the point. That's, that's the whole point of this, this final section. It's, it's a big, uh, it's a big uh, impacting verse in terms of the way Mark is unfolding this, this whole uh, book, this whole gospel story. Who is this? He's teaching us who's the person in the boat. Okay, this is going to come to a head in chapter 8, but Mark is building a case here. He's asking you to think, as the disciples were figuring out, who is this guy? So the question, though not answered here, is a critical part of the story. Who is this in the boat with you? Which, by the way, my title here gives it away. God is with us in the storm. The emphasis often is placed here on the storm because we think about it about, and in terms of us. We like to talk about the storms of life, but the emphasis here is on who's in the boat with you. See, who is this? Who is this? That's the important part. Well, okay, let's, let's look then at these sections together. So I'm putting the first three sections under this first heading, what is God's kingdom like? So there are four parables. Of course, last week was the first, but four in this chapter, and then three very brief ones uh, that, that show up in today's text. These three show up elsewhere in gospel accounts, but, but here in particular, then these three under that rhythm, as I pointed out, and he said to them, and he said, and he said, so these little pith the parabolic type statements that say something about the kingdom of God. If you look at my bullet points here, and I'm going to move fairly quickly through these, perhaps too quick uh, for what each of these is trying to say, but nonetheless, Jesus is now uh, once again calling us to listen, calling us to hear. Listen to what the kingdom of God is like. So following the parable of the soils, now he says, there's this story about a lamp. And a lamp that's brought in. Interestingly, the, the, the terms that Jesus uses uh, as expressed in the original language have, have the, the lamp kind of like uh, alive. Does the lamp come in? Like the, like almost like the lamp is alive. Well, lamps don't come in. They're brought in uh, unless the lamp is symbolic of Jesus, the light of the world, which I would suggest to you is probably the case. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? And, of course, this question assumes an answer, doesn't it? It assumes that like a, a three-year-old, uh, when you ask them some obvious question, they say, no, no, or yes. Kids answer so bluntly, uh, directly, well, is a lamp brought in to be hidden? You know, hide it under a bushel. 
See, there you go. You guys know. I learned that song, too. I'm going to let it shine. Well, we know the answer. Come on. We know the answer. Do you, do you have a lamp and you stick? If you have one fluorescent tube for the whole church, all 25 of you huddled in a little tiny building that's freezing cold. One little, is it, is it good under the chairs? No, if you're going to use it at all, you better put it on the ceiling, and that's what you're going to get. So back in the day, uh, no electricity, of course, a little lamp, a little wick, maybe one little flame. The way you're going to get the most out of it is hold it up, hold it up. And so here, the teaching of Jesus, Jesus himself, are you going to hide this? And, of course, the answer would be, no, no, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus' teaching, as you see in my second bullet point here, not meant to be hidden, but to be revealed, bringing light to all who will hear. Now, the second parable then, well, before I move on, I should, I should just comment on verse 25. Uh, true to what Jesus is teaching here about the use of parables, so he says here, uh, the one who has, more will be given. This isn't talking about stuff. This isn't talking about uh, economics. You know, those who have more get more. Those who have less get... It's not about that. It's not about your stuff. It's about spiritual reality. That's what that's about. Those, those who hear and hear a little bit and respond in faith, God will meet you there and give you more. And those who get a little bit where they should hear from God and they reject it, guess what? There's going to be a day that your little heart won't respond at all. So it's saying, if you hear today, like Old Testament, today, if you hear his voice, Psalm 95, don't harden your hearts. You hear, you, you, God speaks to you through his word, and you stiff arm him. Don't do that. Don't do that. When you hear some uh, truth from the word of God, God presses that into your heart. The one who has and responds in faith, responds in obedience, to that person, more will be given. But those who say later, or not so much, even what he has will be taken away. That's the way parables work, of course. And Jesus is saying, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear. Because if you hear the prompting of God's voice in your heart today, and you shut him down, you, know, you be careful of that. I'll respond later. And of course, this verse is warning you, there may not be another time that you hear that call of God. So be careful how you hear. And when that when you, the Spirit of God tugs your heart to respond in faith, that may be you today or someone listening elsewhere, uh, aware of the, 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 the call of God and, and a person saying, no, there's time later, there's time later, you know, later may never come. So don't do that. Today, if you hear his voice, respond in faith. I think that's the, it's a, it's a warning, really it is. In verse 24 and 25, pay attention, he says, to what you hear. Pay attention here. Because if you don't respond in faith, there may not be another chance. Okay, this is something to take soberly, and I think Jesus is teaching that. So come to verse 26 then, the second parable, and my third bullet point, verses 26 to 29, Jesus returns to the metaphor of, of agriculture, very familiar in that day. Obviously, sowers and seed we've just talked about. Here's another farmer, scatters seed on the ground. This farmer then sleeps. Can you imagine that? He sleeps, rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. Does anybody else sleep in the stories we just read? There are two. This one, this farmer sleeps and Jesus sleeps in the boat. I would think that's a connection worth exploring. We'll talk about that. I think they're sleeping for exactly the same reason. Huh. 
They're tired? Uh, more than that. This farmer sleeps, rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. Did, uh, here's the question for you. Did the farmer cause the seed to, to sprout? No, absolutely not. Farmers can't do that. Farmers can, uh, uh, you know, cultivate and plant and get the seed ready and the soil and water. But the farmer can't make the seed grow. The one who designed the seed can make the seed grow. The generative power, I would suggest, of the seed is in it. But if you ask a farmer, so how does, how does that germinate? Well, it gets dirt and water. No, no, that's not what I said. I, I don't mean just the process. I mean, how does it work? If you press hard enough, the answer is, I don't know, because you don't know either. That's the correct answer. I remember this as a kid, um, trying to plant something, because that's what you were supposed to do. You know, we had a half acre, and you know, you're a kid, so your parent tells you at some point, go plant something, so you did. I did. And you know, did the whole dirt and water thing, and you know what happened? Yeah, nothing for days. And I remember I did. I did what some of you did. I know you don't have to raise your hands, uh, but I'll tell you, I went out and dug up a few of these little guys because I wanted to know what's going on. It's been days. And they said, you plant them in water and it'll grow. Nothing is happening. Jesus is teaching with us, isn't he? The seed. What's the seed? Well, the seed is certainly how the kingdom of God is working. Um, boy, the, the growth, it doesn't come from you working day and night. The farmer sleeps. No, God causes the growth, doesn't he? The seed is him, his word, his kingdom. Certainly, inbreaking of God's kingdom, if you're into understanding the theology of the kingdom, I believe there is a future kingdom, capital K. At this moment, the inbreaking of the kingdom because the king is there. So when I use the word kingdom, I'm, I'm aware, I'm differentiating between ultimate kingdom, capital K, and here, the inbreaking of God's kingdom because the king is present. That's a whole theological seminary course. But if you're familiar with that topic... That's the way I understand it, okay? But this, this farmer then is, is planting seed. God causes the growth. Apostle Paul says that. Uh, Christmas time. Boy, we think about the, the, the humble way in which Christ came. He wasn't, he wasn't born in a palace, attending physicians, fireworks to note his arrival. We, we know this at Christmas. That's part of what we celebrate is the humble arrival of the king Wow. And somehow God's kingdom is going to grow in places of persecution as the gospel goes out through behind the iron curtain when it was there, little villages, horse-drawn carts, and the gospel goes forward. How does that work? I don't know either. Plenty of adversaries. Sometimes church people are pretty dumb about how we behave. People look at those kinds of things and say, how can I believe? Look at the mess. I get it. I do. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm in it. I live with you in the midst of all of this. And somehow God's kingdom continues because God causes it to grow. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. So the growth of the seed. The farmer sleeps because there's really nothing he can do all night long to cause the seed to grow. Um, interesting, may I just say as a sidebar, this, this whole business of sleep and rest is so symbolic in the Bible. Um, if you study the Bible, this, this affects our whole story here today. So I'll just give you this as bonus material, I suppose. In the Bible, you find four types of rest. Did you know that? Rest and sleep, meaning uh, symbolic. There's four. There's four. All of them are important. So there's the sleep that you get every day when you 
lie down. You take, you, you rest, you shut your eyes, you trust things to the hand of God, and you, you sleep. So there's daily rest. Second, there's a rest that comes when you trust Christ as your Savior. You cease from your labors, your efforts to earn favor with God. You cease from your efforts to earn it, and you rest. You rest your soul in the finished work of Christ. So trusting Christ is, is identified. The book of Hebrews does this. talks about rest and trust. So there's daily rest. Rest and trust, very closely related. Daily salvation. Uh, well, there's the, not only the sleep, but the daily trust you exercise in God for his care, for your family, for your work, for your finances, for your future, how long you live. Sleep, daily sleep salvation, daily trust, and then the final one, of course, is eternal rest. We often say he entered into rest, or she entered into rest. We mean they died, but it's equated with rest. So you can look at all four of those throughout the whole pages of Scripture. You'll find four. Hebrews really delves into this a bit, chapters 3 and 4, where we rest, we rest. And, of course, we sing that, you know, I rest my weary soul in thee uh, because we're trusting God. That's the third we, we rest in him on a daily basis. This farmer is sleeping at night. He's resting himself in God's good care, trusting him to do his work. So he goes to bed at night. So I hope you rest that way. All, all of those, at least the first three, I hope are yours experience. Uh, the fourth will take care of itself in time, but rest one, two, and three. I, I wish for you today. So, so this, is that, this is the second one then, the farmer, agriculture, the seed that's going to grow. It will. There will be a harvest. There will be a harvest. Uh, then you move in verse 30 to the third of these parables, quick rapid fire uh, presentation. And he said, verse 30, this is the mustard seed. There's this little mustard seed. And the emphasis here is on its smallness in proportion to what happens when it's fully grown. That's the emphasis here. So tiny to big, small. So just like the seed in the earlier parable uh, grows in a mysterious way, you can't say how. So here the contrast is between what is small and the idea, of course, is God's kingdom. God's work may start small, look insignificant. In the end, it grows into something much bigger. That's the idea behind this little parable. Jesus used stories a lot to make people pay attention. People do pay attention to stories more than they do just telling Kids are better at this, I think, than adults, but adults pretty well, I think, as well. Now, verses 33 and 34 then say again about how parables work. That is, they have a dual purpose. They are to reveal and to conceal. Both of those are reasons why Jesus used parables, to reveal truth to those who had hearts to hear it in faith. Humble hearts, ready hearts, and parables concealed truth from those of a critical spirit, those of an unbelieving spirit. So uh, to those who, uh, in that first group, with tender hearts and humble hearts, he gives them more. He gives them more truth. I think that harkens back to verses 24 and 25. Uh, so he, he, he gave these parables to those who were ready to hear it. He didn't speak to them without a parable. Privately to his own disciples, that is those who were responding in faith, he explained everything. They got more. See? They responded in faith and said, tell me more. Now, interesting, um, just again, talking about how the text is laid out here. Some of you who are in community groups, a couple hundred of y'all, um, last week you were looking at this text a bit and you saw on the notes that you received the difference between insiders and outsiders. Remember that? 
This is played throughout the Gospel of Mark. Outsiders who were often presented, sometimes the crowds, as, as those who are busy and moving around, but not people necessarily responding in faith. People showing up and sometimes crowding, uh, getting in the way of those who want to come. But outsiders who don't get it, who are there to criticize, there to judge, who don't really believe. And then the insiders who respond in faith, who get it, to whom Jesus gives more information, reinforcing their faith. So outsiders and insiders. Now, there's movement between the two. Sometimes outsiders become insiders when they respond in faith. And if today you would say, well, I'm maybe in the outsider group, well, you could become on the insider group by responding in faith to, to the person of Jesus. Trusting Christ as your savior from sin moves that person from the outside group to the inside. But here at this moment, the parables are being told and crowds are hearing and the disciples, those close to him, get the explanation. Now at this moment, when there's a shift to verse 35, and to do this final movement in today's text, uh, we're moving away from the crowd, and now it's just that smaller group. So we're separating here between the outsiders and the insiders. That's, that's happening, though it's not noted, between verses 34 and 35. It's just what it is, okay? Now, I want to move to that next section. So those three parables, quick treatment of them, I realize. But I'm moving then from the question of what is God's kingdom like to now a vivid illustration of the kingdom. It's the king, the king in action. And so you come to this very familiar story, familiar to most of us, I think, So we return to narrative in verse 35. That day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Okay, we're on the Sea of Galilee. We're up north in Israel. If you know your Israel map, if you don't, maybe maybe you have a study Bible with maps in the back. If not, you should get one. Get a study Bible. Uh, And you'll see the way Israel's laid out. It starts to make sense of the whole Bible. Uh, Sea of Galilee up north, uh, Jerusalem down south, Jordan River connects those two. But up north, Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, called a variety of things. Lake of Gennesaret, but it's it's there. So so we're going to go across to the other side. Doesn't necessarily mean all the way, you know, mathematically, but to a different part that you might go by boat because it would be quicker. So let's go to the other side. Jesus is is speaking in a boat according to chapter four verse one, and now they're getting ready to, to to go. So it says they took him just as he was. I take that to mean he's sitting in a boat. They said, hey, let's shove off and let's go. Other boats with him, and off they went. And in verse 37, this big windstorm arises. Now, again, geography is helpful here. Uh, Sea of Galilee is, perhaps you've heard, 700 feet below sea level. Can you imagine that? We live pretty much at sea level. Uh, 700 feet below sea level. Sea of Galilee. And it's in a kind of bowl, mostly surrounded by hills. Um, uh, big mountain up, up north, and boy, these hills create a funnel effect depending on how the, the sun and the, the thermals are all working. But you can take this glassy lake into a significant storm very, very quickly as the winds come down off those hills. And, you know, back then, of course, you don't have a weather person to say, hey, watch out at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, stay off the lake. Eh, who knows? So you take your chance. You, stay, you head out. It looks good. Might be a glassy lake. It's a beautiful night for a sail. And before long, you're fighting for your life and thinking you're going to die. That happened then. It happens now. That lake can go from calm to turbulence very, very quickly, just due to geography. Now, interestingly, Mark, in telling the story, probably with Peter's words in his head, he uses the word mega three times. That's a word we would all recognize. 
and I think it's interesting. So maybe you won't find it interesting, but for the few of you who do, uh, here you go. There is a mega storm in verse 37. That's a great windstorm. That's the term great. There's a mega storm. Then when Jesus speaks and tells it to be quiet, as we read, there's mega calm. There's a great calm. And then in verse 41, there's mega fear. Three megas show up in a very short story. That's kind of interesting, at least to some of us who are language nerds. Others of you, let it go. Uh, Well, mega, I just think that's kind of fun. Uh, Seasoned fishermen, bullet point number two. Seasoned fishermen are afraid. Isn't that interesting? These guys fish, a whole bunch of them, not all of them, but a whole bunch of them. The great windstorm arose, the waves are breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And, of course, they wake him up, and they're not waking him up just to have a conversation. Uh, They think they're going to die. Now, I I just want to talk about fear for a moment. Part of the human condition means that fear attends us, doesn't it? We have fear for a lot of things. And, you know, sometimes I hear people in faith, people of faith, in good faith, talk about fear like all of it's bad. Like fear should, you should never have, should never have fear. You should always fight back. And can I just say this? There's good fear and bad fear. So before you, you know, get all excited about saying, I'm not going to be afraid of anything ever. Like, yeah, huh. I'm not sure that's good. Um, there are things we should be afraid of and things we shouldn't. If you're going to walk across a plank over a pond with hungry crocodiles, I, I don't know. There's a certain amount of fear that would be appropriate to this. Uh, Your car breaks down in downtown Seattle. You're by yourself. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. I don't know. Fear might be appropriate. And if you're not afraid at that moment, I don't mean just like under the car seat. But I mean, if you're not thinking, huh, this is interesting. If you're not afraid at all, maybe maybe you're not that smart. Maybe, maybe, you know, um, you would say, well, this is great faith. Well, yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's that smart. You, you just might want to pay attention here because you might have some bad happen to you. Fear can be a friend. Fear hopefully keeps kids from touching hot stoves. Afraid it's going to hurt. Fear might keep you from doing something stupid. Fear how it's going to turn out. This might not go well. Uh, fear, I mean, there's a healthy place for fear. To be driven by it in an inappropriate way. In a whole, I think Jesus is going to separate some things here. Good fear and bad fear. Sometimes we say, oh, I don't want to be afraid. I'm going to say this anyway. Guess what? Sometimes a little bit of fear about how poorly that might go might be a good thing for you. Huh? So fear, fear has its place in God's world. Now, controlling fear, uh, inappropriate fear of people. No, I don't mean that. But I, I, I push back a bit when I hear people say, I'm against all fear. You go, really? That's, I don't think that's very smart. So anyway, if you ever experience fear, hear me say, maybe that was a good fear. Now, it may not be as well, of course, but, but these guys, fishermen, are afraid in the back. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. I love, I love the instinct here. Verse 38, Jesus is in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. They awoke him and said, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? I appreciate the instinct. What do you do when you're afraid? That's a big part of this, not don't be afraid, but what do you do when you are afraid? Uh, The psalm writer says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I I praise in the Lord, whose word I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So when I'm afraid, 
I, I will turn to the Lord. I'm going to come to him. So that instinct is the right instinct of a believer. When you're afraid, rather than getting all over yourself and saying, yeah, but you shouldn't. But when you are, you, you turn to him. That's the right thing for a believing heart to do. Turn to him. So you, you go to Jesus. Now, their question is really interesting. Don't you care that we're perishing? And may I say, God's people have asked this down through the years in storms for the last 2,000 years. When there's a storm or something going on, whatever that is for you, very often we take that as evidence that God doesn't care. Is that ever the, is that ever the instinct of your heart? I mean, if God, if God was here, if God was caring for me, this wouldn't happen. That's often how we respond to God. I wouldn't have this dread disease. I wouldn't have this major financial crisis. I wouldn't be asked to carry this load my entire life. This isn't the way I want it. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. If there's a God, I look at the bad. So here the question, don't you care that we're perishing, has some assumptions to it. It assumes that if God sees you and cares, he's going to fix that thing or wouldn't have sent it in the first place. And may I just remind all of us, I'll state the obvious, um, storms come from the hand of God. They don't just happen in the world and God allows them. Oh, I, I understand. And we talk about difficulties and storms. I'm just saying this. Um, there are times that God sends us into storms for our good so that we will learn to cry out to him. So don't view every storm like it was some terrible cosmic accident. Like, oh no, God should have avoided this. No, no, he may have done it. Are you ready? Hear me carefully. He may have done it on purpose. For your good. See? It may be a gift and you don't even see it. All you see is I don't like it. At the very same time, God, who sees all and knows all, says, no, no, dear child, this really is for your good. <laughs> Maybe you need this, or I need, I need to use this to, to shape your life and your heart. So here comes the storm. You're going to protest. You're going to yell. You're going to wonder where I am. I got it. But here comes one, and I'll be with you. So let's not misread storms as though they are evidence of the absence of God. I I really believe storms in general are an evidence of the goodness of God. So please, please mull that over in the middle of the night when you wake up. Okay? Hmm. Now, they wake up Jesus, of course. He gets up, verse 39, and he rebukes the wind. And says to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceases, and there's a great calm. And his disciples are terrified. Uh, this is, a, this is a quite a moment. You wake up Jesus, you think he's going to say a few words to calm you down, or tell the rowers how to row, what's he going to do, what's Jesus going to do to fix it. And he's, this guy in the boat stands up and addresses the force of, forces of nature... And he commands the, the waves that have no ears to hear him. <laughs> and the winds that don't listen to respond to his voice. And they do. Can you imagine? Who is this in the boat with us? Now, Jesus asked a good question in verse 40. You know, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
mean, I, I think he's calling them there to say, do you still not understand who I am? Do you still not know who's in the boat with you? I, I want to address just, just a word or two here about this concept of Messiah. They were coming to the understanding that Jesus was Messiah, but their understanding of what Messiah meant was faulty. Okay? You can trace this through, through the New Testament. Um, in the Gospels, Jewish people had an idea of what Messiah was going to do. There have been other great deliverers in the past. We've had those before. But Messiah was going to come. He's going to be a great deliverer. They saw him as one who's going to throw off the, the bands of Rome, the occupiers of their great country. And Israel's going to rise again as a nation. And it's going to be good again. This Messiah. But they didn't think Messiah would be God in the flesh. They were missing that detail. They decided he'd be a great deliverer, wonderful guy. But God, you mean to tell me our maker is in the boat with us? Is, is that what you're telling me? Our maker? <laughs> this changes everything. Because the forces of nature respond. Now, interesting, again, those who argue about some of these things, please pay attention to this little tidbit. Sometimes people talk about miracles as, as, as Jesus interfering with nature. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Jesus never interfered with the forces of nature in his healing and raising the dead. You know what he did? See, we assume by that statement, interfering with the forces of nature, that illness and death are normal. They're not normal in the world God created. They're an upside-down part of the kingdom. Nature is broken today. What does Paul say in Romans 8? Nature itself cries out. Nature groans. Nature is in bondage to corruption. Nature isn't the way it is now, normal with sickness and death. This isn't normal. No, Jesus, for a moment, restored normal. That's what he did. He brought shalom to bear. He brought the future kingdom to bear, where there is no illness and no death. So people sometimes say, it's just, you can't tell me Jesus interfered with, interfered? Really? How about healed? How about that? I'd buy that. Jesus, for a moment, he healed the broken forces of nature. When he healed somebody physically, when he raised the dead, he healed. He healed what was broken. That's kingdom, yes, ultimate future kingdom. A little slice of it here. More that could be said on that. Why was Jesus sleeping in the boat? My fourth bullet point, almost done. Why was he able to sleep in the boat? I give you the answer. Because he fully trusted the Father. That's why. Jesus slept. Yes, he was tired. I got that. Fully human. Absolutely. Evidences of his humanity. Certainly. Um, the farmer sleeps in the previous parable. Jesus sleeps here. The same reason. It's exercise of trust. That's the connection. I see they're both trusting the good hand of the Father. Jesus' identity, I'm saying here, fifth bullet point, the big issue here. Who is this in the boat? Who is this in the storm with us? I want to go to that final part under responding to God's word. Years ago, I had a class from Jerry Bridges, um, a prolific author. Some of you have read some of his books. If you haven't, you should. Uh, now with the Lord, very humble, gracious, gracious man. And I especially remember because those uh, the classes that I had there at the time in that program um, usually were characterized by massive research papers at the end. And I remember we asked uh, Dr. Bridges, how long of the paper are you expecting at the end of this class? He said, well, long enough to address the topic. 
yeah, buddy. <laughs> One of the others had said, well, I already know you can't address it in less than 60 pages, so I'm expecting 60 minimum. So Jerry Bridges comes along and says, well, just address the topic. And you go, yes. Oh, what does that mean? Well, less than 60, let me tell you. Jesus, but, but, but Jerry Bridges said over, do you see, on this topic, this text, I remember him talking about the gospel. And he said over and over, do you see the gospel in this story? Jesus slept in the boat for me. Because I don't sleep in the boat. I'm restless in the boat. I fear in the boat. Jesus slept for me. Sometimes, please get this, please, please. Sometimes in church and in the Bible uh, study and things, we, we end up coming away with the idea that the message of the Bible is try harder. Like you're not good enough. Work harder at it. Come on. Come on. Trust God more. And it, it, yes, I get it. We should trust God more than we do. But we can miss the gospel here. The gospel isn't try harder. That isn't it. How does that work for you? Just try harder. Well, you, you, it's not much good because you're going to fail again. Have you noticed? And all you do is run around saying, well, I'm, I'm really a failure. I don't, I'm not good at this at all. Really, th listen, the gospel here, Jesus lived a perfect life. He perfectly trusted the Father. And when you trust Christ as your Savior, when you become a part of the family of God, when you become a part of Christ himself, you, you hear us say this often, the benefit of his perfect righteousness covers you. The one who slept in the boat, the righteousness of him sleeping in the boat belongs to you. That's why Jerry Bridges would say, Jesus slept in the boat for me, because I don't. And, and I don't trust the Father all the time. I don't. I'm your pastor. I struggle with this. Do you ever, anybody else get an amen? It's hard sometimes to trust God. And you come again and say, God, help me again. Help me again. Because, man, I'm not good at this. Jesus slept in the boat for me. The righteousness of perfect trust. That righteousness covers me. See, this is the gospel. He slept in the boat for me. And the righteousness of that is credited to my account. The one who doesn't perfectly trust. Jesus slept in the boat for you. That's the gospel. Amen. That's the gospel. I hope you know Jesus today. hope you're trusting him as your savior. I hope you know this one who's in the boat with you. Who is he? Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. He is God. He is God in the flesh and the person of Jesus. The one who paid the price for our sin. Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us as we head out. <clears throat> Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this uh, text today, the parables, the kingdom, and then the king, the king in action, God in the midst of the storm with us. Thank you, Father, for this. As we head into this week of activity and thanksgiving and awareness of your blessing and for, for many of us, awareness of things that are not the way they should be. I know that that attends this week as well. Father, would you be with us in your active presence this week and tune our hearts to sing your praise. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.